0: pause for a second and we'll pray together before we look into this topic this morning. God, oh, that our spiritual lives might be dominated by that same sentiment that we would seek you and find you where and when you may be found. And Lord, may we have hearts today that expand in our desire to connect with you, to know you, to hear you, and we would be willing to come to the end of ourselves for such a lofty goal. Oh, Lord. Be the speaking teacher here this morning and uh, we uh, open up our hearts to be transformed, to be set upon the most important thing, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Hey everyone, the video was so cool. You know, I'll confess this, um, there was some stock footage in that uh, video. Yeah, it wasn't all original AC3 shoot, but the deer, totally AC3. We captured the deer, so that's pretty cool. Uh, So I've been saying, and if you're around AC3 for any length of time, we we talk all the time about Jesus making it abundantly clear what the most important thing is. But some of you never studied this. You've never actually looked into the context, and it matters because you can actually learn some things about discovering where and when Jesus drew our attention to the most important thing. So we get one um, recollection of it from Mark, and um, we find this in Mark chapter 12. So um, that whole... uh, uh, Discourse there in Mark chapter 12 is about the week leading up to the crucifixion. It's going to also be the lead up to a special Passover. So there's a ton of people in Jerusalem and they're all gathered around. And every single day of that week leading up to the Passover, Jesus and his disciples come into downtown Jerusalem. And they occupy time inside the Temple Mount. And they do some talking and teaching. And during that time, every single day that Jesus does that, he's very busy dealing with skeptics. And when you and I think of skeptics, it's not the kind of skeptic Jesus was dealing with, right? You think about a Bible skeptic, you think about a God skeptic, someone who has a hard time believing that stuff. Well, the skeptics Jesus are talking to during that week, they, they believe in the Bible. They believe in God deeply, you know, devotedly. They, they are skeptical about Jesus. They're Jesus skeptics. They are skeptical of Jesus' claims to be the son of the living God, which he's been making abundantly clear in his teachings, in his parables. And so they're, they're confronting him every day as he's teaching about his kingdom, and they're really kind of pushing back on him. And they're trying to trip him up, and they're trying to catch him in a contradiction. They're trying to catch him in a heresy so that they can immediately discredit the guy. So, one day, uh, there's a guy who's listening to these debates, Mark says, and he records the following, chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, I want you to, before we go any further, I want you to think about who this guy is. All we get is the description that he is a teacher of the law, so... He's got spiritual cred, okay? With the people who are gathered there around. He's got spiritual credibility. He knows the law. He lives for the Mosaic covenant. He's probably got most of the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Bible, memorized. That's kind of was par for a lot of the Pharisees uh, back then. So he knows. That there are literally hundreds and hundreds of commands and regulations and duties and obligations in the law of Moses. And a lot of them, in fact, maybe most of them have to do with offerings and sacrifices. Okay, So when he asked Jesus what the greatest uh, commandment is, asking—excuse <laughs> me he's asking a question that a lot of others had asked. Because when you're faced with that many regulations and rules, man, you go, what's the, you know, Boil it down for me, man. I mean, like, pare it down. What's the essence of the whole thing? Well, Jesus wasn't the only one to answer this question, but his answer was very unique, and he gives the center of all of this regulation, and and it's a mic drop moment. And what's interesting is that a lot of times, Jesus answers questions with questions, frustratingly so, right? Jesus, why this? And he says, well, why this? And uh, instead, here he's really quick with the answer and immediate The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Okay, now when Jesus lays down the gauntlet like this, and so abundantly clear, where he does it kind of matters too. I mean, this is really significant because where he is standing, I've been near there. I couldn't actually get up on the Temple Mount because that's a Muslim-controlled area these days, but I could, I could be around it and I could see how incredibly impressive this must have been. It was a 40-acre site that was you know leveled off and built up by Herod the Great, an amazing kind of complex of buildings, and at the center was this opulent granite edifice the temple the third temple and it was bigger and better than any of the other temples that had preceded it it was 80 feet tall and 80 feet deep and 80 feet wide and it was this incredible thing this center of jewish worship and uh this physical place was uh, so notorious in jewish life that they had just simply shortened the name of it instead of calling it the temple complex they just called it the place so if you were a jew and you said it's the Place that's what you meant it was that incredibly important and central and in front of that grand edifice the temple every single day there would be hundreds of sacrifices and rituals and rites they would be performed every day these religious observances that had become the center of Jewish life now in that location okay imagine Jesus talking in behind him there's the temple okay and here's what he says, of all the commandments, of all the ordinances and rules and regulations, this is the one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What, what's the most important thing? Amazing that he doesn't say, well, you need knowledge of the Torah, of course. He doesn't say observing all the customs. He doesn't say making meticulous observance of all the traditions of the elders. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say ritual purity is of paramount importance. Nope. The greatest commandment in the Bible, the sole duty of man, love God. Love God. It's so surprising. I mean, imagine a people, perhaps you know deeply burdened I mean they're in that milieu and maybe they're also thinking about their own obligation to the entire Mosaic covenant and burdened by it and imagine this sort of mic drop moment when Jesus pairs it all down just love love God now if that was surprising maybe what was more surprising was that the Mosaic scholar who asked them the question agreed next verse verse 32 well said teacher the man replied you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but Him. To love Him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that He had answered wisely, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared ask Him any more questions okay so think about how this is going down guy says you're right jesus you're right religious observances are not primarily what god is after god wants all of us more than the fat of lambs it's all secondary all of it secondary to loving god and i'm imagining there's a second round of stunned silence after that why because this isn't coming out of jesus mouth i mean the people are regularly used to Jesus saying radical things that just about got him killed several times leading up to this moment. But here's a Moses lawyer agreeing with Jesus. a guy steeped in Moses. It's like two mic drops in a row. And to this, what does Jesus say? Mad respect, dude. No, actually, what he says is, you're not far from the kingdom. You're starting to get it. I love this. He says, um, When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, answer, all he did was repeat Jesus' answer. (laughs) So notice in Jesus' uh, book, when you're you're wise, when you just agree with him. So so this is fascinating. He's saying you're starting to get it. You're starting to understand the radical new way I have come to inaugurate. And, And Mark then says no one dared debate him after that. This is all this series of debates and pushback and confrontation in public and Mark says, that just shut it down. Now why? Why would the response from the religious leader, why would that shut it down? Because if this could come out of the mouth of a Moses guy, if this could come out of the mouth of a religious leader, a teacher of the law, then everything about their current religious system was changing. Everything. And so you imagine how the, the intellectual dissonance that the crowd that must have come over the crowd at that moment. Jesus was changing minds. He was changing this guy's mind. And so it would be like an, uh, an intellectual, religious earthquake. The, the, the ground was shifting beneath their feet, and they dare not ask any more questions, lest they unsettle everything about what it means to be a Jew. Here's the question that's so shocking for them. Does it ever shock you? I mean, ever. That Jesus would do it, that Jesus would pare it down so beautifully and simply. Does it ever shock you that Jesus says, "To love God, to offer him our whole hearts and minds and bodies and obedience, all of us, is more important than all religious observances. The sole driver, the prime directive, the life purpose of every one ought to be love God." I mean, it's shocking. What he's doing is he's simultaneously abrogating, lifting, that is to say, all these requirements and regulations and at the same time expanding the intent, expanding the, the call of all this stuff that Moses brought us. So perhaps you hear Jesus paring it all down, right? Cutting past all that stuff and you're like, whoo, you know? So glad because I hated it dragging lambs to church every weekend that was a real bother drag him up to the front rick slits their throat blood everywhere that was a real bother so now we don't have to do that anymore so whoo you know jesus really alleviated a lot of responsibility you know so just gotta just gotta have the feels for god you know like a hallmark movie just think god and go oh and you know that's it that's all he wants you know love for god that's that's it yay no actually Listen to the condition, right? Listen to the condition. It's not about mere sentimentality toward God. But of course, clearly, it's not about throwing God a bone of religious observance either. So what is it then? It is all of you for all of Him. Do you understand? It's all of you. All of you for all of Him. To love God with all your heart and soul and mind, and strength, I mean, what does he, leave? tell me, what has he left out? How do you compartmentalize that? Is that, that's not a duty that you can check off a list, it's this, it's love God with all that you are. What part of you does that leave out? That's not religion, that's not mere sentiment either. All of you, for all of him, But you know, I notice uh, that that's not how loving God goes in church a lot of times. Uh, It's not all of us. There's an illustration for uh, for this I found in church history. There's a guy named Ivan the Great, the Russian Empire, uh, a a Russian um, Tsar, leading the Russian Empire in the 15th century. And uh, when he agreed to marry Zoe, she was a a Greek princess, so he agreed to go down to Athens, down to the headquarters of the Greek Orthodox Church, uh, to be baptized and now the rest of this might be legendary and apocryphal okay so i'm just using it as an illustration i'm not sure if this actually happened so the legend has it that ivan learned the catechism in record time and uh, made his way to athens and he was going to be baptized by immersion followed by his uh, personal palace guard and so according to the same legend his 500 soldiers ever loyal asked to be baptized along with their master but there was a problem. The Catholic Church, the, the Eastern Church, prohibited professional soldiers from being baptized. So they had a discussion because it was a big pomp and circumstance. We were marrying. We were bringing two kingdoms together. The whole thing, you know. So they had to be all worked out for public view. And so they, behind closed doors, worked out something with the priests. And so on the day of the baptism, 500 soldiers walked into the Mediterranean in full battle uniforms with weapons at their side. And as the priests began to baptize them, each soldier reached to his side, withdrew his sword, lifted high overhead, every soldier totally immersed, everything baptized except his fighting arm and his sword. And after that, the church actually coined a phrase, which is still around to this day, called the the unbaptized arm. The unbaptized arm. In AC3, the unbaptized arm is how a lot of loving God looks like. And maybe you'd recognize it in your own life. God gets this part, and he gets this part, but he doesn't get this part, and he doesn't get this part. He doesn't get all of us. Oh, he might get some religious observances, some of the habits. In fact, some of the habits, the very habits we're going to talk about this week and next week and the week following the habits that build a spiritual life. He'll get some of those habits. He might even get some sentimentality from you. I just love God. I love him so much. He gets some of the feels. But the irony is, friends, you can give all of that to God and you can withhold yourself. So I look around the room this morning and I look into my own heart and I wonder how many unbaptized arms there are in this place. Is there an unbaptized arm? Is there an unbaptized will? An unbaptized talent? An unbaptized mind? Unbaptized sexuality? Unbaptized relationships? Unbaptized strength? Unbaptized home situations? Money situations? Relational situations? I mean, I think we understand what this means, right, friends? When Jesus says the thing, the main thing is to love God, he says, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And what does that leave out? Friend, God's not after some ritual. And He's not after some sentiment. He wants you. Your total devotion. Full devotion. That's what we, that's what we call full de, fully devoted followers. That's what we're after here at AC3. This is the beginning and the end of the law, Master says. And it's the beginning and the end of spiritual maturity. In case you were wondering what the end game was, that's it. Full devotion, all of you, for all of him. And by the way, that's a source. And that's why we begin with this love, because it's the source of all Christian living, a vital love relationship with God. See, this isn't another duty. This isn't a drain on your resources. It is your resource for the Christian life this is it it starts here and Jesus would connect them love for God second is like it love for your neighbor and then we'll get third week into love for the world it's all connected but begins with this fountainhead this spring from this spring all your Christian maturing flows all of it and so you were to call the alone challenge right and what's the first thing they got to worry about they got to worry about a calorie stream they got to get that calorie in because you're out there alone and Calories are going out. You have to replace the calories that are going out. So first step to physical survival is get that calorie stream flowing. And it's more important than anything else. It's more important than shelter. It's more important. If you watch the show, this is fascinating, what some people will prioritize out in the woods first thing. Like one person made a chair on the first day. I need a chair. Our guy Blake, right, he's just meticulously crafting a shelter. And meanwhile, he's starving to death. Uh, It's more important than creature comforts. Getting the calorie stream is more important than a toilet. Well, likewise, friends, spiritual maturing as a disciple of Jesus begins by establishing the calorie stream. Where where are you going to get the resource for following Jesus? You thought following Moses was hard. (laughs) Look at what Jesus lays down for you, that you have to deny yourself and follow him. And friends, where are you going to get the nourishment for that? You have to be connected to the vine. Jesus would talk about this. He said to the disciples, listen, you can't do this without me. You understand? This is an impossible thing. You don't do the Christian life except through me, by me, from resourced, from deep inside, from a vital love relationship with the head of the church, even Jesus himself. That's how it gets done. So a disciple is simply the one who is, fallen in love with God and you have to begin your journey here and if you don't what's going to happen well you're going to hear a series like this and some of the duties of the christian life and you're just going to fall back again into religious observances and duties and guilt and comparison with your neighbor and the whole poisonous way of works so then okay you say all right rick fine how then how 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 do i love god that's a great question right i mean god's invisible Uh, How can I give to an invisible entity? How can I affect him in any way? Some of you maybe have asked before. Well, let's look at the early church for the answer. This is Luke's description, and it's inspiring. I never get tired of reading it. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple every day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people, that's the outsiders, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Now you read that carefully, friend, And we're going to come back to it the next couple of weeks. You see all the great loves there. You see the greatest commandment. You see the great commandment, the second greatest commandment. And then you see the great commission. It's all there. But what's really super cool about this is they also show us how they did it. They're engaged in those great loves, but how they did it is instructive for us. So let's read it again. This time only the parts that relate directly to that first prime directive, love for God all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread. That would include the communion celebration and to prayer. They worshiped together in the temple court uh, each day. They met in homes uh, for the Lord's Supper. So break this down with me. The early Christians showed off their love for God in four very practical ways mentioned here. They studied and learned the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They regularly Uh, celebrated the communion meal together. They gathered publicly for worship. That's what they did to love God. And you can easily see inside those four habits that they group into two grand categories. And these are two sets of habits that you and I, if we agree that love for God is the prime directive, ought to do. They are growing and glorifying. And let's expand on those. You notice, okay, so, so Luke says that the early church was devoted. They were devoted. To new habits. Devoted means they didn't just do these things once. It wasn't just a one-off. Devoted means they did them all the time. So they became habits. So we talk about spiritual discipline around here. I kind of like Luke's word a little better. Their devotion. they devotion. It's about being devoted. So they were devoted to these new things. Which was, what's, what's the first thing right out of the gate? The first thing is they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So they're devoted to sitting at the feet of the apostles and just say, teach me. This is a new way that Jesus taught you for three years. Now you teach me. Teach me the way of Jesus, the radical way of the kingdom of God on earth. And then they also gave themselves to praying. Praying all the time, praying without ceasing, praying corporately, praying privately. Now, when you consider those two devotions, those things they were devoted to, have you ever asked what the goal of such habits would be? Well, Paul will make no bones about this in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. He will say, listen, here's here's the end game in in God's mind. He lets us in. The end game in God's mind is for those God foreknew, He also predestined. And He he has a plan, that is to say, He's got a plan for you. And the plan for everyone who follows Jesus is to be conformed into the likeness of His Son that He, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So in other words, that Jesus would be the first of a whole bunch of people who look just like him. So when you are recreated in Christ, you are recreated to look like Christ, to grow in his image, to look more like him tomorrow than you did yesterday. And you say, well, how do I get that done? Ask the early church. By talking to him more and by uh, knowing him more. It's it's, It's kinda simple and it's very relational that way, right? It's like, how am I gonna become more like Jesus? I know I'll know him more and I'll talk to him more. And so you can illustrate that from your own relational world, can't you? I mean, when you're in any kind of relationship, isn't, aren't those the things that you want? You want to know that person more, and you want to experience that person more. When you fall in love with someone, right, anybody who's been through courtship, I mean, you fall head over heels in love, and you're immediately overwhelmed by a couple of impulses. And the one is that you want to you experience that person. Oh, you just want to... Touch you and talk to you and be with you and be near you and do stuff with you and relate to you. But that's not all, right? I mean, you can do all that in a very short-term uh, relationship, but you you also want to know them. You you want to know their likes and dislikes. You want to know their dreams. What's their vision for their own life? What what do they value? What's important to them? You want to know those things. So you want to experience them and you want to know them. All the habits, friends, that we're going to talk about in the next three weeks, all the habits of the spiritual life are about this, about expanding both those things, the experience and the knowledge of God. And so you have to have both. Because I can, I can pull apart a, a for you a, a disciples on either side of this thing, and they're not getting it. For example, I could point out a cold, An immature Christian who can quote Bible verse after Bible verse, but they do not know the one that they know so much about. Oh man, I mean, they got a Bible verse at the ready to lay it down for you to confront you, or to defend their position, or to you know run to and hide behind, or whatever it is. But you know, any amount of probing, and you know, they do not, they do not know the one they know about. But there's another side to this too. I can point out another disciple who's flimsy and shallow. And by the way, you notice uh, the four contestants, uh, they represent the four soil types. One of the soil types is shallow. Have you figured out which one is that yet? I'll leave that up to your imagination. But um, you've seen these shallow disciples. They look really good on the surface, but they're flimsy, they're shallow, they'll regale you with their grand spiritual experiences. They feel the feels about God, but then they wind up totally misrepresenting God to the world because they don't really know him. They don't really know God. They don't know God's way. They don't know God's mind as he's revealed it through the Son. They don't know God what God values. They, they, don't, they haven't surrendered to it in any way. It's really become more about their feeling and their experience of, of God than it is about following God. So the habits that grow you into maturity must do both. They must grow your knowledge and your experience of Jesus. To love God, it must be both. So how do you know Jesus more? How about you start with read what he said? And how do you, where do you find that? Well, the apostles, the people who walked and talked with him, happened to write it down, them and their close associates. So you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching like the early church did. Well, where would you find the, that, that apostles' teaching? What, where's the repository of the apostles' teaching? It's in the Scripture, right? It's in the compendium of books called the New Testament. You study it. You submit to that word. You obey it. You don't just talk about it either. You, just, you do it. James will say, James, brother of Jesus, will say, chapter one, verse 22 of his little letter, but be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. That's the knowledge piece. You get to know him. But then there's the experience piece. How do you experience God? Well, you devote yourself to prayer, like the early church did. You commune with the Lord. You do it daily. You never miss a day. You go to where God may be found. And, and friends, you, the, the song so beautifully illustrated it this morning. You, you get silent in the trees, to come to find a God where you you can quiet your own self, and that's a big part of prayer, where you seek God. And seeking God doesn't end after you bow the knee of your heart and become a Christian. So that's why prayer is a multifaceted thing. It's not just talking to the ceiling. Prayer also includes listening. It includes silence. It includes meditating. It includes getting alone with God. And and some of you, you're gonna have to practice this to get used to it, like for long periods of time. We're gonna go over all this stuff and extend it today a little bit more detail. You're saying, how do I even get started on that? Dan's gonna really help us out with that. But listen, can you imagine you getting silent for 10 minutes? I mean, just like all inputs out. Like you literally and figuratively take the earbuds out and just listen. See, you know, some of us have a complaint in our spiritual life. I don't hear God. I don't feel God. I don't experience God the way, you know, devoted Christians talk about this and I just kind of wonder if there's anything to it and then I look at your life. It's wall-to-wall noise. It's wall-to-wall technology. It's just wall-to-wall busy. And God has never promised to speak into that, to muscle his way past that not the promise he's done it before but that's not the promise the promise is he would speak in a still small voice and in, in, are you in any posture to hear such a voice well the habits get you there and so if there's no silence no space for reflection uh, no thinking no reading or learning you have no calorie stream coming in and guess what to keep the alone analogy going you're going to tap out All right, let's move on and and talk about glorifying with the time we have left. When the early church met, they they glorified God. They worshiped, they met publicly. They of course must have done this privately in their own own prayer closet, but they worshiped corporately. And now, Christian worship is unique. Other religions worship, Muslims worship, Hindus worship, Buddhists worship. They have religious rituals that they go through. What's unique about Christian worship? Well, what's unique about it is defined by the communion meal which we share regularly. Christian worship is opposite of, of religion. It's opposite of normal human religion. Normal human religious worship essentially is constituted in this uh, idea Do these rites gain favor with God? Maybe. That's it. That's essentially religion. Do these rites sing the songs, say the prayers, you know. Uh, you know count the number of rosary beads and do this and you know repeat this a number of times do these things gain favor with God maybe and Christian worship it's flipped it's you have God's favor already certainly now lift up your song of freedom that's it it's completely flipped so grace which we'll talk so much more about in week four is at the center of our reason for glorifying God and, and so inside of Christian worship is also awe and surrender. The Bible says, look, in worship, you rem, you're, remind, you're reminded of this thing. You were made for God's pleasure and not the other way around. And I think some of you, if you're long-term church attenders and you've engaged in Christian worship for a long time, you, really this puts the lie a little bit to how you experience it because really it's about your pleasure. You know this by the commentary that goes out of your mouth or in your head when you exit the worship service. Something like, I just really didn't like that song this morning. So apparently it's about your pleasure and not God's pleasure. For John will say in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and for your pleasure they were created and had their being Worship reminds you, you were made for God's pleasure. You are here for God's pleasure and not the other way around. Oh, is there pleasure in God? There is, absolutely. And even though worship isn't necessarily for you, it is your gratitude response to God, worship will still do something for you. Make no mistake about it. It will, first of all, shrink you. And you say, oh, that doesn't sound good, Rick. I don't like that. No, seriously, this is a gift to you. Worship will shrink you, everything about you, and that will wound your pride, but it will liberate and, and and empower you all at the same time. Because what shrinking you does is it shrinks your importance, and that will shrink your worries. You understand? You see, in light of God, eternal, majestic God, what is your life? It's a breath. But you think your life is just a... It's the thing, right? The universe revolves around your head and the things you're worried about and the things you're concerned about. How can it not be? This is, the, this is where you're observing the universe from. It's from this station right here. But in worship, you realize that this is just a tiny little thing. And there is a creator. And you're a creature. So worship shrinks you and shrinks your worry It shrinks your worry about tomorrow. It shrinks your guilt about the past. It reminds you that there is a great and awesome God. And if you're of the the kind of, you know, the scientific type and you look at nature and you go, whoa, I mean, we can't matter at all. Listen, you're not the first person to have that insight. Read Psalm chapter eight. There's the psalmist looking out of the night sky and he says, when I consider the night sky, the stars and the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him? the Son of Man, that you should care about Him at all, and yet you have made Him a little lower than the angels. You understand, this is what worship does for you. It shrinks you, but then fills your heart with gratitude. It's like me, a tiny little speck on top of a speck floating around another speck matters to God. So worship sets your world right again every single week. You are a creature and not creator. Now you might say Rick I don't I don't I don't know how to do that. Worship is weird. Listen, we get that. And especially if, if you're investigating here today, you're kind of kicking the tires on Christianity and you're not sure about the whole church thing. Listen, we understand. Worship is intimate. It must be intimate, right? If we're going to do it right, it must be intimate because it's about loving God. And love is intimate, right? And again to use marriage as our analogy, you know, when my little girls walk in on you know, John and I, and we're kissing or something, and like, ew, it's so gross. I mean, it's not just awkward for them; it's like repellent. You know, it's like that's good. Boys are bad. That's just that's my that's my mantra for them. So that's good. But you understand, you know, when you're not engaged in it, for you're the outsider observing intimacy, it's awkward. But listen, friends, for that reason, uh, you know, we we kind of we we set it apart a little bit, but um. It's okay that worship is like that. And some of you are, are st- still standing on the outside of this and judgy. Can I say that? I, I see it, friends. You're, you're very judgy sometimes about, oh, that person's standing up, hands in the air, and I wonder what they do on Monday morning, you know, beat their kids. Listen, um, look, everybody is processing their love for God, and when we gather together in the public environment, You don't know what's going on in that person's heart. Let them lay their heart bare. Let them lift their hands. Let them bow their knees. Let them express their love for God. And and if it's inauthentic, God knows. You let that be God's problem. You just bring your heart. You just love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and have no unbaptized parts of you as you engage with the great I am. The all-sufficient, all-knowing creator of the universe. So Christians, we have this oneness with God that's like a marriage. I mean, that's God's chosen metaphor, right? Right? You're the bride, all of you. Men, women, you're all the bride. And you respond to the loving initiative overtures of your groom. And maybe we would all come to that place where worship intimacy that's defined so beautifully by Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. You can tell he loses words here at some point. He gets in such lofty territory. He says, I I just pray. I pray your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand love of God with all your mind as as all God's people should. How wide, how long, how high, how deep this love is. May May you experience the love of Christ. Though it's too great, to understand fully. I mean, every one of us, through worship and glorifying God, should be moving into that place, AC3. So let's wrap this by saying this simply. We're in January, another year has passed. And now another year stands before you, another year for you to be a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of you have been bemoaning the fact that, oh, I just, I never get off top dead center in my Christian life. I don't feel fed, I don't feel like I got the tools. Listen, okay, let's start here. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because without me, you can do nothing. Can we start here and let's start again because your gracious God, his mercies are new every morning and let's start again and we will be a growing people And we will be a glorifying people. And so keep our eyes focused on the one thing that matters. Loving God. Let's pray. God, grow this church. And when I say that, you know what we mean this morning is, Lord, grow us in the character of Jesus. Grow us to look more like him by knowing him more and experiencing him more grow us in the habits that bring us to the places where you may be found, that draw us into the places where you speak by your Holy Spirit with a still, small voice. Lord, grow us that we might be people who glorify you. Our lives put the spotlight on you. And may it be so for the sake of Jesus, the Master who sought us out and bought us with his own blood, We pray, amen.